One night, in September 1784, a young black man is sitting in a theater in Paris with a white woman. The place is packed. Torches are burning. Suddenly, a musketeer enters their box, sits next to the woman, and starts chatting her up. Um, pardon me, monsieur, she tells him, but I think you are not sufficiently aware that I am not alone. Oh, pardon me, says the musketeer. I took monsieur for your lackey. And right then, the musketeer is hoisted up by the young black aristocrat and tossed into the orchestra pit. Now, there's another version of this story in which the musketeer is a well-known naval officer and approaches the couple with two armed companions. He tells the woman, You are quite beautiful. You have a nice figure and a nice bosom, which maybe sounds better in French, or maybe worse. I would be pleased to get your address, he goes on. Would you accept mine? This goes on for a while, one indecent proposal after another, until finally, the black man tries to leave with his companion. But he's grabbed and forced to kneel before the officer, who loudly announces, You are free. I give you pardon, and you may leave. This version was recorded by the police in recently discovered statements from both the naval officer and the black aristocrat. But we know which version was preferred by Alexandre Dumas. He wrote it in his memoirs, comically describing the unexpected descent of the ill-mannered musketeer into the orchestra pit as, quote, a matter of interest both to the falling body and to the people on whom he fell. The 22-year-old black aristocrat was Dumas' father. And Dumas would spend much of his career writing The Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, and other stories, one after another, in which a wronged man always gets his revenge. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of fathers and sons, pens and swords, and what any of us might do when we feel like throwing someone into the orchestra. I'm Tim Gearing.
A few weeks ago, I was working on this podcast when a colleague saw what I was doing and said, wait a minute, Dima was black? The guy who wrote The Three Musketeers in France in the 1800s? Yes. Yes, he was. And this happens all day, every day, all around the world. People who know these classic adventure novels finding out long after reading them that, yeah, the author was black. You can go on Reddit right now, the social media site, and find a dozen threads of people saying, T-I-L, today I learned that Alexandre Dumas was black. Maybe you're T-I-L-ing this right now. Henry Louis Gates Jr., the African-American scholar and author, remembers hearing in college that Dumas was black and thinking maybe it's some kind of a legend, like the myth that Beethoven was really black. Or maybe Dumas was black, but passed as white. Well, a portrait of Dumas, a pastel drawing by his friend Eugène Giraud, was recently acquired by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. It's a nice portrait, widely reproduced in its day. In the picture, Dumas is handsome, handsomely dressed, and, as everyone knew at the time, unmistakably black. Let's go back for a moment to Dumas' father. His father is a French nobleman, a white guy who buys the freedom of an enslaved black woman in the French colony of San Domingue, now Haiti. He has four children with her, and then he sells her and all the kids to pay for his trip back to France. Well, of all his children, the nobleman likes Dumas' father best, Thomas Alexandre David de la Paitrie, who goes by Alex. And so, the nobleman buys Alex back once he's settled in France, and Alex goes to live with him in Paris in 1776. Alex is soon a dancing, dueling aristocrat, the kind who takes a box seat in a theater with a beautiful young woman. But then, after falling out with his father, Alex joins the army, just as the French Revolution is about to begin. As it happens, it's good to be Alex during the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, fraternity, right? For people of color, women, Jews, the French Revolution offers a little more freedom, if not respect. Alex is promoted again and again. Until in 1793, one year into the revolution, he's a general, commanding 10,000 soldiers. The next year, as France abolishes slavery in its colonies, Alex becomes commander-in-chief, 
He's the highest-ranking black man in a mostly white army until Colin Powell comes along 200 years later. People start telling legends about him, how this six-foot-two centaur of a man hung from a beam and picked up a horse with just his legs. How his men were stopped by a hill, and Alex threw them over it, literally, one by one. But there's another man rising alongside him. Napoleon, right? Alex probably could pick him up with his legs while hanging from a beam, and Napoleon knows it. And so, when they're both in Egypt in 1798, Napoleon has a spy follow Alex around, and he accuses Alex of mutiny, threatening to shoot him. Alex, on his way back to France, is taken prisoner by Italians, and Napoleon, who's already back in Paris, taking over the country, lets Alex rot in a dungeon. Napoleon not only brings back slavery and restricts the rights of free black people in France. He also orders the capture or killing of any black man from San Domingue wearing a military uniform, which is pretty specific. Alex finally gets back to France two years later, and by then, he's a broken man and broke. But when Napoleon is asked to give the general his pension, he says, don't ever speak to me of that man again. Alex dies at 44, when his son, Alexandre Dumas, is only four years old. Dumas hears about it the next morning at his uncle's house and asks, What does this mean, dead? And someone tells him, It means you won't see him anymore. And Dumas asks, Why wouldn't I see him anymore? Well, because God has taken him back. Dumas asks, Where does God live? He lives in heaven. Dumas runs back to his house, grabs his father's gun, and tells his mother, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to kill God, who killed Papa. Napoleon was going to be Dumas' godfather at one point. But, yeah, that doesn't happen. Dumas grows up poor in the countryside, hating Napoleon as much as he hated God. But instead of the sword, he takes up the pen. He starts writing plays as a teenager and has his first hit in Paris at 27. He stages at least one play a year, every year but one, for the next 22 years. Sometimes he stages four or five. He once opens three plays in 15 days. 
If an earthquake swallowed up all the best writers in France, one critic says, Dumas alone could fill up its libraries and its stages. Dumas can write anything, it seems. Comedy, adventure, travel, true crime. He's a master of the pen. But he doesn't mind trading the pen for the sword, his father's weapon, if he has to. He can't forget his father, even though he hardly knew him. Quote, The memory of my father, he writes, every detail of his body, every feature of his face, is as present to me as if I had lost him yesterday. He can't forget what happened to his father. At the very start of The Three Musketeers, Dumas has the father of the hero, D'Artagnan, advise the young man to never submit quietly to the slightest indignity, for it is by his courage alone that a gentleman makes his way nowadays. Have no fear of many imbroglios and look about for adventures. Dumas fights his first duel at 23, nearly the same age as his father that night at the theater. A soldier insults him at dinner. Dumas challenges him. Well, the soldier oversleeps, and they have to reschedule. Then Dumas thinks they'll duel with pistols, which he's actually pretty good with, but it's swords. When they finally meet at a quarry in Paris, the soldier tells Dumas, take off your jacket, your vest, your shirt, your suspenders, all of it, even though it's January. And once Dumas does that, his pants fall down. Now everyone's laughing at him, even the quarry workers. But Dumas strikes the man in the shoulder with his sword, and the man steps back, trips over a root, and falls in a snowbank. Duel over. If you believe, and you probably shouldn't, Dumas' own account. By the time The Three Musketeers comes out in 1844, followed by The Count of Monte Cristo, Dumas is perhaps the most famous writer in France, right up there with Victor Hugo, certainly the most popular. But imperialism is rising, right, along with racism. And critics are tying themselves in knots, trying to figure out a way to talk about Dumas so that a black man is somehow not the face of French culture. Now, Dumas has figured out that there's good money in serializing his work, right? Breaking up his stories to come out little by little in magazines. This is how The Three Musketeers comes out and The Count of Monte Cristo before being published as novels. But then he goes a step further. He hires a team of freelancers to come up with story ideas. 
and maybe the framework of stories. And, okay, maybe a little more than that, but mostly the ideas, which is the hardest part for Dumas. He can make anything sing. He just doesn't always know what to sing. Some people say he's running a factory, putting the frosting on cakes that other people have baked. Not to mix too many metaphors. Well, maybe one more metaphor. When you are a real novelist, Dumas says, it is as easy to produce novels as it is for an apple tree to produce apples. And that gives the critics their opening. Yes, Dumas is popular and prolific, smart and engaging, totally deserving of all his riches. But he's not serious. The thing is, Dumas doesn't care. He is, as a fellow writer says of him, the most generous, large-hearted, delightfully amusing, egotistical creature on the face of the earth. When the checks start rolling in from the Count of Monte Cristo, he builds a miniature castle outside of Paris with waterfalls, a grotto, a moat. He calls it the Chateau de Monte Cristo, and he throws incredible parties there that never really end. Living well is the best revenge, right? And Dumas lives like the aristocrat his father was supposed to be. He eats a lot. He travels a lot. On one trip to the south of Spain and Algeria, he literally brings a boatload of friends with him, including Victor Hugo and the painter Eugène Giraud, who is sort of the house artist, chronicling the movable feast that is Dumas. Now, like a lot of aristocrats, Dumas also cheats a lot. He's a de Jupon. Pardon my French. He has some 40 mistresses. And in the 1820s, he has a son with one of them. A son named Alexandre. Now, when little Alexandre is seven years old in 1831... Dumas legally recognizes him as his son and takes him away from his mother. If Dumas never gets over being taken from his father at a young age, his son never gets over being taken from his mother. He too takes up the pen, writing about illegitimate offspring and how men should be forced to marry the mothers of their children. And he, too, becomes wildly popular, just as his father is starting to stumble. By the late 1840s, Dumas' imbroglios are catching up with him. One critic writes, Aside from being a nobleman, 
Emily Vicomte Alexandre Dumas is the worst creature you can imagine. Having no worry, no care. A man of pleasure, of feasting, of throwing through the window gold wine and women. Well, Dumas sees this and immediately fires back. I accept the title of nobleman that you gave me. The weapon of a nobleman is an appay, a fencing sword, right? I await you with two appays, he writes, to know whether you are a knave or not. Signed, M. Dumas. He throws down another challenge at a fellow writer. Your first letter was an insolence. The second is a joke. Wednesday morning, my seconds will be at your house. M. Dumas. Dumas had written, Have no fear of many imbroglios, right? But he is afraid. This time and maybe every time. The other writer has been practicing at a shooting range. And so, the night before their duel, Dumas writes his mother some 20 letters, supposedly from Italy, to confuse the matter and postpone the inevitable news of his death. The duel is held in a forest at high noon. The men at 50 paces... They turn, walk 15 steps toward each other, fire. The other guy misses, then Dumas misses. Reload the pistols, he cries. Let us fight to the death. No, no more pistols. Let us fight with swords, then. But no, it's over. M. Dumas lives. But he can't live like he used to, right? His writing isn't selling like it used to. His long-suffering wife has moved out. His bank account is empty. He loses his chateau at Monte Cristo just two years after moving in. And then, in 1851, Napoleon III stages a coup and a Bonaparte is once again in charge of France. One day before a court judgment on its bankruptcy, Dumas gets his passport stamped with a travel visa, gets on a train in the middle of the night in freezing rain and leaves for Brussels. His son has come with him And the two Dumas begin to feel their way around each other. Quote, My friend, the elder Dumas writes to his son at one point, when he can't take his moralizing any longer. You know that Madame Dumas is Madame Dumas in name only. While you, you are my son. And not only my son, 
but about the only happiness and distraction I have. And his son, feeling compassion or pity, begins to carry his father along from one country to the next and finally back to Paris. And by then, his son is more famous than he is. In the fall of 1870, with the Prussians laying siege to Paris, Dumas drags himself into a rail car, leaving the city, and shows up at the summer house of his son. I come to die with you, he tells him. His son places him in a bed facing the sea. And when Dumas sees two little coins, two gold louis, sitting on the bedside table, he says, Alexandre, everybody has said that I was prodigal. You yourself wrote a play about it. And so, do you see how you were all mistaken? When I first landed in Paris, I had two louis in my pocket. And look, I still have them. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. You can listen to The Object on Audible now and on Amazon Music, and you can ask for it on your smart speaker. Wherever you listen, subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.